Hello and welcome to Ask a Fellow, the Pennsylvania Art Education Association's first ever podcast. My name is Leslie Marie Grace and I'm president of PAEA. I've been teaching for 17 years and I'm excited to serve in my newly assigned leadership role. And I hope that this podcast offers you inspiration and closeness in this time of isolation. I also hope that with this podcast to offer you more opportunity to connect and hear from our PAEA fellows who have so much history and shared experiences in art education that we can benefit from hearing. Perhaps you'll find yourself nodding along in agreement. Maybe you'll have an aha moment, or maybe you'll come to the realization that we are all in this together. Whatever that may be, I hope you enjoy listening to the stories of great art educators who helped pave the way. Hey Meg, yay, yay, we're doing it, we're doing it. Woo-hoo. You can hear me okay? Yes, it did not load on my phone, so I'm on my computer. Oh, okay, well I can hear you and you can hear me, so I think that'll uh, that'll work. Perfect. I'll have to do some troubleshooting on my end later to uh, figure out why it didn't work on your phone, but it sounds like we are good to go and it is recording, so um, thank you. This is really exciting. It is I'm exciting, a... thank you. <laughs> I'm <laughs> yeah. clapping, I'm clapping. So uh, Meg, if you could for a moment, just introduce yourself, your name, who you are, where you're from. Sure. My name is Meg Barney. I currently live in Delaware County, a little town called Media, Pennsylvania. Uh, Originally grew up just outside of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania in Franklin County. And I'm a retired art educator and the chair of the PAEA Fellows. Thank you. Awesome. So Meg, we'll, um, we'll just dig our heels in and get started and see how this uh, conversation and discussion evolves. But I figure we could talk for whatever organic time feels like. I'm thinking maybe 30 minutes. I, you know, we'll, we'll feel it out and see how it goes with this being our first one. Uh, I'm sure we have a lot to learn from, but I'm appreciative of your efforts in helping us to uh, give this uh, project some legs. So Meg, if you could tell us what made you want to become an art educator, what was your inspiration? Inspiration. Um, When I was in elementary school, I dearly loved art class. Our art teacher would come to our regular classroom with all the supplies on her cart. And by second grade, I knew I wanted to be an art teacher. I loved seeing all the colors of paper, all the colors of paint, And I sensed that I could get the materials to do what I wanted more easily than my classmates (laughs) (laughs) with with some results that were satisfying to me. So that's what sparked my interest. That's awesome. We have that in common. And I knew pretty (laughs) early on, too, that I wanted to be an art teacher. (laughs) It's fun to make that connection. I'm not sure if it was uh, all the colors that ever inspired me, but I I think I just loved teaching and I loved art. But that's amazing. Nice. Good. Um, (laughs) So how many years were you teaching in the classroom before you retired? Uh, Yes. On a calendar, it would be 35 years, um, which would include uh, daily subbing as well as long-term subs. It took several years before I got my first full-time position, and it was in the district uh, that I live in now. So I knew it was a good district, and I just sort of hung in there each year as a long-term sub would start and then finish, and I would get released, and then they would reopen for another position in the district teaching art, and I would apply for that one. And just sort of kept leapfrogging like that until eventually I had a full-time permanent job. 
Right. That's not too uh, unfamiliar for folks who are new to the field, I'm sure, uh, mm -hmm. jumping around from sub long term position. So that's good for folks to hear for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but wow, you have so much experience to share with us. So thank you again. You're welcome. Um, thank you. <laughs> when uh, when did you retire from the classroom then? And how did you know it was time for you to retire? Um, yes, it was June of 2015. And there were several signals that were um, coming to me that allowed me to know it was time for me to move on. Uh, my mother um, had been in declining health and died in December of 2014. And then my father's health was declining. And I looked at how many years I had in and the district was offering a very good early retirement incentive package. So the timing was all lining up and I thought, okay, if I retire now, I can help take care of my father. So I turned in all the paperwork by March and April and then I started to have doubts um, had I made the right decision. Um, as I sat in the quiet, empty room in the first week of June, working on plans for the next day, all of a sudden, one day, the color wheel fell off the wall. And I looked over and was very surprised because it had been up all year. And so I just went over and hung it up and went on with my work. And then the next day, I taught my classes all day as usual. And again, in the afternoon, when it's quiet, everyone's gone. I'm there working on plans for the next day. And the color wheel fell off the wall again. So that time I did not hang it up. <laughs> there was a <laughs> phrase in my head that said, yes, you did the right thing to turn in the paperwork. It's time. So when the students yeah. came to art class the next day, they, of course, asked me, where's the color wheel? And I said, well, it's near the end of the year. I'm sure you have it memorized by now. You don't need it anymore. And they looked very pleased with themselves. And they said, well, of course, we know what the color wheel has. And then a week later, I announced I was retiring. And then they were all in tears. No. <laughs> Must have been really hard. I can't, I'm like, I'm tearing up just thinking about, my years are further away, obviously. But <laughs> I'm, it's sad to think about leaving the profession. Um, do you ever think about going back uh, to sub or do you? Um, our dis I left on a good, um, what should I say, a good rapport with the district mm -hmm. in which I live. And it's the same district, you know, I worked in. So what they allowed me to do was have um, a part-time position that was an outreach for senior citizens in the district. And that gave me a badge that I could wear to go in and out of all the buildings. So I was still a well-known face to people. So then it also allowed me to sort of pop my head in to the art teacher rooms I had been their coordinator for several years. And so I would just sort of behind the scenes, help them out if they needed, you know, an extra, you know, bit of paint or if they wanted me to go buy, you know, widgets or whatever's. Um, and one or two of them had me help in their classroom with an extra pair of hands, especially on clay days. You can always use another pair of hands on clay days. Absolutely. Uh, so um, those first couple of years, I was sort of around and about as people wanted me to be there. I did not invite myself. I would wait until they would call me up. And of course, as the years goes by, goes, go by, there's less and less of that. And people are seeing me, of course, more and more at the state conference. So it still allows mm -hmm. me to have a sense of what's current and to um, give some thoughts if someone wants them. But I'm very cautious to step in um, where um, the invitation is not there because I also know when I taught, it was a different time than what it is now. And so um, the same 
um, situations are not present and there may be a core piece that's still usable, but other parts are not applicable at all. So I'm understanding of that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I, I do think some of that mentorship uh, you did in the uh, later years after your retirement uh, plays or follows you into your work with PAEA and as being a fellow. Um, so I think that's a good segue to talk about your connection with PAEA as you and your husband, Stephen, have been involved with PAEA for a long while. So if you could speak to us how long you've been involved and how your involvement began um, and anything about that journey, I'm sure we'll have some other questions come up along the way as you share your story. Okay, well, um, both Stephen and I were students at what was then known as Kutztown State College now called Kutztown University. Uh, we were members of the student chapter for PAEA and NAEA and had joined while we were college students. So my PAEA number is a very low number. It's only four digits, whereas some members now have a number that's like seven digits long or something. Um, so um, Kutztown, as you know, would host one-day conferences each fall, and the art education majors would serve as hosts and work at the registration desk and guide visitors around, and we made sure we did that. And our first state conference we attended was in Pittsburgh. And since um, we had raised all the money and um, had put together a package to get ourselves out west, we and another classmate from the chapter used all the money <laughs> to drive to Pittsburgh. <laughs> we stayed in the conference hotel. We attended all the conference events. We returned back to Kutztown and then shared the information with the rest of the members of the chapter. Um, once we graduated, we each got jobs immediately as art teachers. I have to say Kutztown prepared us very well. And then we tried uh, for all those years after that to attend as many state conferences as we could. And then sometimes offering workshops. And then most recently helping with the exhibitors and vendors. So how many years in total? Uh, I'm guessing if you yeah it was 1935 well, 1979 I probably joined or 78 so even 80 is the year I graduated so there for 40 41 42 years maybe of being a member amazing of yeah yeah amazing yeah that's uh, so, <laughs> so cool that's for me <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sorry go ahead no that's okay I was gonna say Stephen's journey you know he he sort of dipped in and out of membership. Uh, because his career's changed from teaching to being a chef for a while. Um, and then he's returned back. Of course, he's a member again. He's been a member now for the last six or seven years again. Um, but I just hung in there year after year. <laughs> There's another connection for me because uh, there was a while that I thought maybe I'd be a, a chef because I love cooking so much and I'm like just as creative in the kitchen as I am in the art room. Uh, I thought I would be a cook for a minute and I was like, no, 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 go back to your roots. art history, art education. That's what you want. <laughs> well, I have that's a, uh, that's, that's interesting. You would say that there is that artistic piece to the presentation of food as well as the creativity of the seasonings, right? And the ingredients. Mm -hmm, yeah. um, and there was a year where in the high school setting, I was teaching ceramics and the school was under construction for our end of the building. So the ceramic studio was no longer a viable choice. So they didn't want me to teach ceramics that year. They said, you can't teach ceramics for first semester. I said, well, if I don't teach it first semester, you and I both know students won't necessarily come back for second semester. Like if you don't start kids at the beginning of the year, it's very difficult to get them to switch gears halfway through the year. So I said, I'll teach ceramics history. 
They said, how will you do that? I said, well, I will have, you know, of course, some lecture, but we'll also have hands-on of a variety of materials, not clay, but other materials. And I said, we're going to eat food of the culture of the history. So I got permission that at the end of each unit of history, whatever the country was that that particular period of time of ceramics was matched to, I would serve food that had been cooked using ingredients. Like if it was Egyptian, if it was India, if it was um, Turkey, if it was Colombia, I was, making, I was making sure there were foods that matched those cultures. And it was really quite enjoyable for the kids and me once we would get to the end of a unit and then we knew it was our day to eat and then review all the information of that particular culture and their ceramics. Um, so here's a way to put it together. <laughs> That's awesome. I have a really good memory from, I think it was sixth grade where we were doing uh, lessons about cultures and we all had to bring in a different dish. And I remember bringing in dolmas and making dolmas with my father. Yeah. And that, that just such a good memory. Yeah, Greek, yeah. right? Greek. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, the grape leaves. Yeah, and yeah delicious. Mm -hmm. So good. I still love them. I don't think I, if I hadn't had them as a child, I might not like them now as an adult. So I'm really glad that that was an experience I got to have. And I'm sure that you uh, opened up the students uh, you were teaching to many different cultures and their food. So I bet they think of you often. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. And I bumped into a few as they got older and they were telling me they were getting A's on their social studies tests because of what they learned in ceramics history. Yes. Awesome. Yes. The power of art, right? So I'm going to go a little off script for a second here with um, when you're talking about attending the conferences since you were in uh, college and your studies for art yes. education. Um, so obviously you see the benefit to attending a conference and uh, to continually going year after year. So if you could speak to that benefit of being with uh quote unquote, your people are art educators, right? What is, what, what is that benefit to you? And why is it important for art educators to attend conferences? Oh, sure. Um, when I was a college student and first teaching, um, it was, of course, you wanted to stay current and you wanted to have your credentials be as professional as possible. And since I was still going through long-term subpositions, I always wanted to make sure I was representing the best of the best. And the best way I thought to do that is to learn at the state level. Also at the conferences at the time, the fellows were very active and uh, some retired teachers as well. So we would hang on their coattails to learn as much as we could from them because we figured they were sort of the, the sage or the wise ones, you know, to learn what was going on. Um, then you also had what was like the cutting edge of different um, trends or directions in art education. So really understanding from the inside out, you know, what was discipline-based art education? And then later on, what was visual culture? And then having an understanding of standards-based and then understanding you know, how to write a curriculum that's sequential and, and a scope and sequence um, and being able to help other colleagues who couldn't attend the conference understand what was going on when you got back home. Um, it also gave vocabulary to me that allowed me to sort of hold my own when I was in a meeting of administrators and also allowed me a chance to have information really at my fingertips to help with parents who didn't yet understand the viability of art for their child to have it be a major in college. Like how are they going to earn a living, right? So you ended up with a lot of rich information that you could have. It was current, it was solid, it was authentic. And then it was useful in a variety of settings as I was developing as a young teacher. Mm -hmm. Awesome. 
definitely still holds true. I think everything you're saying, and uh, I, I, I'm fascinated um, because a lot of what's happening now in art education with uh, maker spaces and design thinking and the trends that are coming up now, it's it's hard to see past where they are now and how we will look back on them in the future like we do looking back on something like discipline-based art education. So I'm excited to talk to uh, one of the fellows that you suggested about that um, in, a, in a future uh, mm -hmm. podcast. But it's, it's just interesting to hear from you. You were there when a lot of these uh, were in their prime, these moments and these trends in education were in their prime or when big moments and decisions were being made for art education. So you're such a valuable resource mm -hmm. for us to speak to. And if there's, you know, mm -hmm. were, were there any, uh, anything that struck you as lasting or being short term in art education when it was happening? Um, that's an interesting question. I think it depended geographically, really, on where a person was teaching. In some parts of Pennsylvania, um, people were able to, to bring in the new and not totally toss out the old ideas so they could have this uh, healthy mix. For some other geographic areas, um, they wouldn't accept the new ideas at all. And like for a third category, they would take the new ones and just completely toss out what had been there previously. So you would see art educators sort of in three different tracks whenever something would be coming from PAEA and NAEA. Um, administrators, sadly, in their own conferences, weren't always getting the equivalent information. And so when they were coming with a different trend for their um, school, whether it was school culture or whether they wanted to do um, outcomes based um, or whether they were doing, for a while our, our district had done these walk arounds and there was a checklist and they'd be looking for certain things and, and observing. And it was um, an interesting little dance to work with the list that the administrators had and what we knew was good practice in an art room and help them to see what we were doing matched what they were looking for, although it had a different name. So, you know, studio practices we know is higher order thinking. Um, but yet when they don't see that exact phrase in your lesson plan, they're not certain you're using higher order thinking or have, having the student really stretch and grow with um, a, a sort of the, the highest level of Bloom's taxonomy, which became Anderson's taxonomy. I think it got adjusted with creativity at the top. So as art educators, we needed to almost speak two languages. What was the administrator side looking for and what did we know was good practice in art education? And um, it led to really good, rich dialogues. Um, it took extra time, of course, to work out those conversations, but it was definitely to the benefit of the students whenever those conversations could happen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's interesting uh, to mention the two languages and the, the administrators with their checklist, that's obviously still something that happens. They've just reshaped how they present that. And, and now it's in the, the lens of Charlotte Danielson's yes. framework, right? So there's the different domains and they come into our rooms with that same checklist, just yes. adjusted. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, they often don't see in the art room uh, that, that code switching, yes. we have to yes. do that for them. Yes. <laughs> So it's still happening. They they clearly don't always learn from it. Mm -hmm. 
But uh, yeah, so we definitely still have to break that down. And we even have to break down our standards because they expect to see our standards written in this very academic, rigorous way. And it's a way that if we were to say it to the students, it might just go right over mm -hmm. their head. So, you know, God forbid you put your standard in a format like student can or I can draw different types of lines. Like they want to see it in a much more academic way. So interesting. Yes, yes. And, and there have been <laughs> different workshops, I think, at PAEA conferences to address this. I do think, though, since mm -hmm. the um, standards keep shifting or how they're measured keeps shifting, it's almost a topic that you could revisit in a spiral every few years just to say, OK, where are we now in this journey of art education? Uh, what are we faced with in our home schools? And what can we bring to the conversations with um, our administrators? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, and I agree with that. I think it is something uh, cyclical that we should keep checking back on, especially now our situation is so different and diverse from school to school and district to district, whether we're virtual, hybrid or in-person and how that affects the teaching and learning that's going in place and what's most important to teach now. You really have to look at you know, what is the bare bones that I have to teach the students during this time and how can we effectively do that? So I, I do think that like even now there should be some sort of look at standards. This could happen again, right? It could be a different strain of a virus that comes around and we could be in the situation again in a few more years. So we should be better yes, prepared yes. for it in the future. Very good. Um, so then Obviously, I know you think art education is important. I think art education is important. You've gone to multiple conferences and you still go to multiple conferences. So what, what would you say to people to explain the importance of art education? Explain it to us. For yes, us. Um, one of the aspects drilled into us at Kutztown was that you wanted to have high quality art education instruction delivered by a certified knowledgeable art educator. And that was just really emphasized to us. Um, having that certification, being um, well um, prepared in your craft, and then being able to deliver the content to students um, would then provide a rich opportunity for students to be in a space then where their voices would be heard and recognized. And today in 2020, we even say those voices are amplified as the students share their truths of their um, places they're, they're approaching you know, the art room from. Um, the art educator, I think, also provides really important instruction in skills and content that are transferable to so many settings in the world, um, occupations and interpersonal skills as well. And then also the art educator that is open to hearing and learning from the student and hearing the student voices, and then is willing to be changed by that interaction, then can offer the student a safe, and as I learned at our conference this past weekend, a safe and brave space in which to learn and grow. So the art educator is really, really important um, to student growth, to student learning, um, and then even beyond the walls of the school, you know, throughout the community as well. Absolutely. So I'm hearing that social emotional learning we do in the art room is really uh, a, a big 
draw in bonus for art education. And then also you mentioned earlier too, um, sort of circle back to that, um, how, you know, the art room, our studio practices are those higher order thinking skills. And now we have the movement of studio thinking and the studio habits of mind, which uses those studio skills, but in a way that's more explicit to apply it to other areas of a student's life and how what you're learning in art can apply to other areas of your life. So that's uh, something that you're uh, bringing to mm -hmm. my mind and what you're um, saying. And two terms that I was just thinking of, I've heard outside the art field are the word um, innovation, which we know has been in, in companies, et cetera, and even the medical field. And then, um, the the other piece is looking at what they call executive functioning and sometimes they'll say oh you know you need to develop mm -hmm. these sort of logical skills where your mind can tackle a problem determine an order of steps to solve the problem and then logically you know have this executive functioning higher higher order but in a way that um, is not random and it's not haphazard and chaotic it allows the the person to go through in sort of a methodical way yet being open to learning to solve the problem. And those two types of thinking, I'm, I'm thinking also of Eisner's writing when he was saying, you know, when you're doing this, this is the mind working mm. at its very, very best. When you're doing left brain and right brain integrated together um, to reach a conclusion or a new solution. So yes, that's all part of the art room too. And again, helping art educators to share and talk about that with like I say, business leaders in the community, administrators who come to evaluate them, school board members, when they hear presentations uh, from the art teachers. Um, it's the, all of those settings are very um, rich opportunities for the art teacher to explain exactly what's going on, almost like a hidden curriculum, but definitely a, an important rich part mm -hmm. of the art classroom. Yeah, absolutely. And what you were saying, too, about the executive function, that makes me go back and think mm -hmm. again about design thinking, too, how you have a solution to uh, or steps to follow to get to your solution and, and that process, too, being cyclical, like you can follow it in order um, to get to a creative problem solving, but you can also jump around in the process as needed uh, to suit the mm -hmm. uh, benefit of the problem. So <laughs> uh, yay for art education, for creating such diverse <laughs> and divergent thinkers. So Meg, this has been a pleasure. Um, we are at 25 minutes, so I think this is pretty good. Um, I will end with uh, asking you, what is one tool in your art teacher toolbox, whether tangible or intangible, that you could not have survived yes, without? Yes, okay, one tool, um, I'm gonna say it's a phrase, and then I'll give some, some clarifying parts to the phrase. And the phrase is to stay centered, no matter what, staying centered was so important um, to being successful. And that required a mixture of self-confidence, of openness and willingness to be taught by the students, um, a spirit-based or faith-based set of affirmations that I would use in my mind to stay calm, especially when I was facing a challenging setting or an interaction. Um, appropriate sleep and nutrition helped with staying centered. And then all seasoned with a healthy sense of humor. Um, when I retired, the art education department gave me an apron. They each had put their handprints on it. And in the middle of it, they had placed the phrase, stay centered. And I have that apron here on my left, just as I'm talking to you right now. And since I did teach pottery for a while and had the 
teaching of centering of clay on the potter's wheel, it also went full circle to looking at it as a practical uh, way of applying the approach in the studio processes, and yet in the sort of um, allegorical, existential sort of way of saying staying centered no matter what. Absolutely. And I'm going to bring it full circle here as the color wheel falls off the wall. Our time, our time is up. <laughs> Thank you so much, Meg. This was a pleasure to talk to you on a, um, a different, a different format, I suppose, uh, and to get to know a little well, bit more. Thank you about very you much for the opportunity, Leslie. You're most welcome. And if I can be of any other assistance, of course, feel free to contact me. And uh, I'll look forward to hearing more interviews and, um, you know, helping support PAEA and supporting you in whatever way I can. Thank you so well, much, thank Mike. You. Have you a great rest of your day. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to PAEA's Ask a Fellow podcast. We hope to release a new episode once a month sharing a different fellow's journey in art education each time. We hope you enjoyed this recording and we look forward to seeing you around in Pennsylvania.